I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show but i should do the actual intro which is um so many so many so many damn books hello and welcome to so many damn books a blessing a curse a podcast my name is Christopher, and I'm welcoming Kelly Link into the hyperspace version of the damn library. Kelly Link, I've been reading her work for so, so long. She's the author of Stranger Things Happen, Magic for Beginners, Pretty Monsters, and Get in Trouble, and most recently, White Cat and Black Dog, which she's here to talk to me about today. She's done so many other things, too, including writing in the book Steampunk and Monstrous Affections and uh, also co-edited a number of anthologies, including multiple volumes of the year's best fantasy and horror. And ultimately, I'm just over the moon. I've been reading your work for years and years now, and it is so exciting to actually get a chance to talk to you. Thank you. It's it's exciting and a little strange now to think that I have been writing long enough that but it's possible for somebody to have, to have read work for, for years <laughs> and years. <laughs> but I'm very happy to be here. It was so exciting when your publicist sent over some of the notes of things that you like in, in a cocktail, because it just meant that for, for making a drink inspired by your work, which is what I did as I usually do, I got to actually have some real notes like pine and cardamom to work with. And so um, this gin that I found that I'm absolutely in love with is called St. George's Terroir Gin, um, and it has these great Douglas fir tree notes in it that I feel like I get on the nose and also in the in the sipping of it and I mix that with chartreuse which is one of these liquors that has like a if you're not familiar with it um it's um, like a ridiculous amount of herbs that people don't actually know everything that's in it because two monks keep half the recipe each which is just one of these I don't know that sounds like a Kelly Link story doesn't it (laughs) I I did I I I like chartreuse a great deal. I did not know that story, but that's fantastic. So there's gin chartreuse, then Dolan Blanc vermouth, um, then lime juice, uh, honey syrup, and then cardamom bitters. Um, and it's lovely because it gets this really great green hue, which I also turned my lights in my uh, damn library green uh, because of it. And I'm calling it the Enchanted Forest, and that's just how I feel when I'm picking up one of your books is that I feel like I'm about to take a walk through the enchanted forest that is your mind. Uh, so I thought that this drink was more, it wasn't just about white cat, black dog, although of course enchanted forests are in a few of these stories, but it's for the whole Kelly link oeuvre. Um, so cheers to you. Are you drinking anything special for, you know, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to make a drink after we, after we hang up, but I haven't had my dinner yet. And so I figured I should better not, (laughs) should not drink any, anything alcoholic. (laughs) Uh, We have a couple of friends up here who are amateur mixologists, pretty hardcore. uh, And um, I'm going to ask one of them to make this drink with me. I think she probably has a lot of the ingredients. um, Great. Yeah, I was yeah. trying to keep it to things that mostly you can get. I mean, any gin will do. The, that that St. George one is just like a, a personal favorite. And when you said you wanted some pine notes, I was like, I think I have something. 
Well, I love I love Jen, and so I may actually I don't know that one, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna track it down because any excuse to buy a new Jen is exciting. <laughs> it's a it's a really really good one, um, and so yeah, thanks for now inspiring a great cocktail. I I'm really proud of how this one came out. Next part of the show, <laughs> that's a. In the business, we call that a transition. Um, <laughs> is uh, what did you buy? Where we highlight books that we've purchased but not maybe read yet. Do you want to start? Do you want to highlight some titles of things that you've picked up recently? Yeah, I actually I have a little stack. So I. Um, I own a very small indie bookstore, and when I go into work there, I almost always come out with books. So this is from some recent trips. Um, there's a, a novel, uh, sort of a set a little bit off in the future called American War by Omar El-Akkad. Uh, there's a book called Venko by uh, Cherie Dimoline, uh, which is a rearrangement of the word coven. And it's about oh. sort of a, a group of witches um, who have a business. Uh, and then there's a, a writer I love, uh, Robert Aikman, um, who's mostly a weird short story writer. But he has a novel called Go Back at Once, which has just been re-released. So I picked that up. Um, Good title. Great. It's a great title, uh, and I, you know, he mostly writes uh, horror, and it has that sort of M.R. James, a warning to the curious sort of admonition. Mm -hmm. uh, Grady Hendrix's How to Sell a Haunted House. Oh, yeah. I have read, and which is great. He's uh, so great. It's so funny where he started with those really, like, gimmick-filled, like, horror store, which is a great book that's partially a cursed Ikea catalog. Um, and then he's just seemingly gotten more and more like deep into it. And he's pulling at some new threads that I just absolutely love reading as he's continued along. This is absolutely my my favorite uh, so far. And then uh, uh, a Rosamund Purcell photography book, um, Nature Stands Aside. Oh. Uh, and uh, somebody has just put out uh, a Art book on the tarot of Leonora Carrington. Oh, cool! It's one of my favorite artists. Um, and then there's a kids' book called uh, "Goodnight Little Bookstore." Um, I think the author's name is Sherix, uh, which is beautiful. It's a good read aloud, um, okay. and I partly love it because uh, looking at the illustrations, it's clear that they are at least partially based on. A bookstore that used to be in Harvard Square, the Curious Bookstore. Oh yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so I I used to go in that store all the time, and when I picked up the book, I liked the book, and I thought, wait, I know, I know, I know this bookstore. I know this bookstore from the art. Oh my god! The is uh, there's a graphic novel by uh, or series by Lewis Trondheim and um a guy named Sfar, and they're they're sort of loosely called the series is called Dungeon, and. Mm. It's kind of about talking animals, uh, Dungeons and Dragons style fantasy. Okay. Um, I love all of them, but uh, this is sort of a re-release with, with some newer translations in the mix. So I'm really excited about that. I bought a couple to give to friends. Oh, cool. That yeah. sounds great. What an awesome yeah. stack. Yeah. I recently was sent um, YN by Esther Yee. It's on the Astra House Press, and it's about a Korean American woman in Berlin who gets obsessed with a K-pop star and it sort of upends her life and she moves to Seoul to sort of chase after him, I think. I've heard about this, but I haven't read it yet. Very, a really great cover, great packaging. I, I, um, I'm really excited about it. And then um, I also picked up, I somehow missed the release of this because I loved Jesse Jezuska Stevenson's first novel, the um, the exhibition of Persephone Q, mm -hmm. which was sort of one of these great uncanny things where someone gets 
an art broadside and it looks like she can't be sure because the face is turned away but she thinks it's her um and it's but she can't prove it and she's trying to figure it out and it was a great novel i really loved it and then um, she's released a new one called the visitors where uh, the main character is being haunted by a hallucination of a garden gnome who is always telling her to like destroy the system this sounds amazing sounds I will so good absolutely be getting this <laughs> and look at that cover like this, oh it's like, beautiful this gnome yeah. cross stitch that's being like <laughs> destroyed um on the cover this looks very cool so I, I don't know how I missed that because I, I really love that first book. So I'm excited that I came across this other one. Um, yeah. But yeah, I am so excited to be talking about the book that everyone should be buying, White Cat, Black Dog. Can you tell a little bit about how these stories came together? To Because this is a short story collection and it seems like they're inspired by fairy tales, but I'd love to know more about how it came together so for the last something like seven years I have been um mostly working on a novel uh which uh I don't like writing a great deal to begin with um (laughs) I (laughs) don't uh I enjoy reading novels but I have never really wanted to write one uh but I began one and um in between going back to the novel, which I kept on having to do, uh, I would occasionally sneak off and write short stories, which um, I'm not going to say I love writing short stories, but I do love short stories. I I enjoy thinking about them. Um, And after I had written, uh, I think, three, with the third story, the third new story I wrote, which ended up in this book, I realized that they all had either very clear connections to particular fairy tales or else I could overlay a fairy tale on on top of it in the sense that that if I put a subtitle in with, with which was the title of a fairy tale uh connection sort of rose to the surface and so I decided that um every, every time I began another new story that I would I would do that deliberately. I would come up with an idea for a short story. I would think about possible fairy tales and how they would work in context with that story and and go from there. Um, I love fairy tales. I love fairy tale retellings. I really loved um, Daniel Lavery's collection, The Mary Spinster, which also does a lot of work with fairy tales both original ones but also uh, with 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 older fairy tales and i haven't ever written a collection that had an organizing principle before uh so that was that was new i like the idea of um coming up with a new set of problems when i'm thinking about short stories and so the Problem, the interesting problem for me was how to make something new out of out of fairy tales that I, I really loved. I feel like fairy tales have often been uh, an aspect of your work. What did it feel like to sort of decide like to not let that be an aspect, but let that be like a feature on top that you're actually pointing to? Did that give you freedom? It gave me a very clear path into writing stories. It gave me kind of a line of approach that that I often will have an idea for a short story. I will have a sense of um, where I want it to land, but I will have to figure out a bunch of other stuff before I can begin it. And using fairy tales as an organizing principle or sort of a, a touchstone, uh, clarified that that sort of very muddy process of beginning a short story for me Mm. Uh, and the other thing that was that was really fun was um thinking about you know each time I wrote one of these stories the next time I sat down to write another story I didn't want them all to have the same approach to fairy tales or the same texture 
And so again, that was that was kind of an interesting problem. You know, I, I if I write a story like uh, the White Cat's divorce that treats fairy tales in a certain kind of way, uh, so what do I want to do next? That will be that will be different from that. There was something that I noticed about that that some of these really hewed very close to the story, and it was you choosing details or just dramatizing some things that a regular fairy tale would never uh, go into scene. But others are just sort of further away. And I'm curious if those were like the overlay ones. And how did you decide how close you wanted to be? Or was that sort of dictated by the story itself? Well, the white the white cat's divorce was written to be published in a catalog that was going uh, along with a museum exhibit of fairy tale art. And so I knew for that one that I wanted the fairy tale elements to feel very present on the page. Uh, and so that that story is is sort of a sequel to the the fairy tale the white cat um but it i wanted it to have the texture of an actual fairy tale even though it is set in the contemporary world uh it it is faithful to sort of the spirit of the original fairy tale in which a, a young man is sent by his father to locate some magical items so he can claim the throne and uh the young man the prince really doesn't seem to care that much about the throne uh he keeps on ending up in this kingdom of talking cats where he parties um and he will each time he parties for about a year and then he's like oh no unfortunately i've forgotten to acquire the thing that my father wanted and each time the ruler the the white cat who rules the kingdom is like don't worry about it uh just take your dad this and so he takes the things back and at the end, uh, he ends up married to a white cat, the white cat. He ends up the king, but it it doesn't necessarily feel as if he wanted that. It really feels like what he wanted was to party with a bunch of, of cats. I mean, who would not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, you know, a very true part of the fairy tale, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the, I think the next story that I wrote was... Um, was maybe the white road uh which which is about uh a sort of group of people who are on the road um something very bad clearly has happened to the world um and it uses the musicians of bremen which is a very light-hearted comical story about a bunch of animals who want to be musicians and encounter um, some robbers mm -hmm. and end up scaring them off. And so I wanted to change that tonal quality instead of having it being a comic story. I wanted it to be a, a horror story. Mm. Um, I, and I wanted to reverse sort of the source of the horror. So it's not the robbers who are frightened. Instead, it's the the group of, of actors who are frightened. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was loving this sort of twist because I definitely had read those two fairy tales before, but that was where my familiarity with these fairy tales ended. And it made me wonder, do you have a preferred way to experience this book where do you, would you rather someone go into this with full knowledge of of the short of the fairy tale that you're twisting or would you rather someone go and read them afterward my feeling is that people should approach them in the way that seems most interesting like <laughs> i i'm a person who i don't mind spoilers i have been known to read the ending of a novel uh when i'm about a third of the way through so that i can experience the pleasure of seeing how the writer is, is setting up the thing that they're going to do with the ending mm -hmm. or with the ending. I have had a, a, a bunch actually of first readers who read the stories and didn't even realize that there were subtitles at all. They totally missed the fairy tale subtitles <laughs> <laughs> and just sort of read them as stories. Right. Uh, so I think that maybe some readers are just not even going to think about the fairy tales at all. Right. 
just sort of treat it like a pesky pop-up ad that's just saying, oh, that's not part of the story. Exactly. You know, you put something <laughs> in parenthesis and it's like you have put it under a cloak of invisibility. <laughs> the only thing worse than that is writing a prologue. Then you're really going to make sure that no one reads that part. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. I saw that you gave that to a character, though. There was There's a character reading a Harlan Coben novel in this, and he skips from the first third to the last third. I, I love that you. that's something that you do as well. <laughs> that, that has been my experience uh, staying in many houses that I didn't own. Uh, you know, you ransack the bookshelves. You pick out the books that look the most fun uh, that you wouldn't necessarily buy, and then you... Uh, you read whatever part of them that you you want to read. Right, right. Yeah, I uh, I'm I definitely know that feeling of like, oh no, I finished everything that I brought with me, and now I have to go searching through these, I don't know, Malcolm Gladwell's to see what, what I'm gonna <laughs> want to read. I was curious if you had. This is a big question, but there's these nested stories, like stories within stories here. And sometimes those stories feel like they could be drawn out and pulled and like pulled like taffy and made into a short story of its own, but it's subsumed into another story. And it just feels like there must be something mechanical behind this in some way that you're thinking about, like maybe a grander short story philosophy that you're playing with of like what a short story can contain. And I think that oh, yeah. I don't know if I've asked the question, but <laughs> it, no, I the question is there. Um, I uh, when I was in college, I went to Columbia, New York, which you have the Common Core, you have the you take a literature course, a music course, all of that. And my big takeaway was um, reading Boccaccio, uh, the Decameron, which I absolutely loved. I thought it was just incredible. And uh, one of the things that, that if you're a writer, you take away from, from the Decameron is um, people are storytelling creatures. Uh, that that you begin a story and somebody else will, res- it's a call and response thing. That if you tell a story to a friend, uh, they will often tell you a story back from their own life. Um, and so it feels it feels kind of natural and human to give characters that space to tell each other stories. Um, and it is absolutely true that um, I have a lot of ideas for stories that uh, as I am writing a particular story, the story that I'm writing will more or less eat the stories that I think that I'm going to go on and write later on, that it will just sort of consume them. And, you know, they will, those stories will shrink down and become something that one character tells, or they will become a, a piece of, of the larger story in, in some other way. The last story in the collection, Skinder's Veil, has a lot of stories built into the, the main story. Um, one of those was actually the starting place, the story about um, a woman who goes back to her childhood home and encounters a ghost in a swimming pool. And yes. for years I thought, I'm gonna write this story. And instead, Skinder's Veil ate it. And I guess I'm okay with that. <laughs> Well, okay, That then that makes me wonder about your novel writing process then. And as you took breaks from your novel, did you find your short stories cannibalizing novel ideas then? Or did the wonderful thing happen and did you get kicked back from writing short stories back to your novel from something that you'd written? I... I think that the the short stories functioned as a kind of reminder that that things came to ends that that even because the novel is is huge the novel is around two hundred and fifteen thousand words that's a monster um, it has 
it has a lot of points of view it has a very complicated sort of uh plot structure um and because it was so long there were so many points of view it felt much more this is gonna sound strange restrained than the short stories did because i didn't have as much space to do unexpected things mm. it's gonna sound weird to say that a 215,000 word novel i didn't have space to do weird things um and i did have some space but I felt much more freedom in the short stories to make unexpected moves. That makes sense to me just because there's that sort of reader compact with a novel that you're going to stay in that world with them and not going to change the rules three quarters of the way through. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, I hope there are things that I really wanted to get away with in the novel that hopefully I got away with, but they're not the kinds of things that I feel like I can do in a short story and trust that the reader is going to be willing to go along with me. Right. And honestly, I was so beat down by the novel that that I didn't really have the mental capacity to to do some of the things that, that, that again, in a short story, short stories basically feel in a good way, like they have much less gravity. You know, you can sort of float off for a minute or two. <laughs> yes. And for the folks playing along at home, uh, just to give you an idea of what 215,000 words is like, if you don't know, is uh, The Great Gatsby is 45,000 words. So <laughs> that's about four and a half Gatsby's, which is a, is a fun term of art. Um, I'm going to start using that actually when I talk about, <laughs> about novel sizes. <laughs> I feel like it's a useful metric because it's like everyone's read it or they know it. There are animals all throughout this book. Uh, I think that when the turkey shows up, that was one of my favorite moments. That's just a great, it's great when a turkey shows up in general, a lot. Absolutely. We we live in a semi-rural area. And so turkeys show up a fair amount of time. And, and actually, so do bears. We get a lot of bears around here, even though it's, um, even though it's a town. Uh, but you, you were asking about like other markers of the fairy tale or the things that the, the sort of motifs or the, mm -hmm. the emblematic parts that drift in. And that was, that was one of the pleasurable things. I, I feel like fairy tale language is so rich um, and, and, and the structures are so familiar to anyone uh who as a child was read fairy tales over and over again or have you know seen movies where that, that come out of fairy tales that those bits of, of structure are sort of Im embedded in our brain and are reliable basically if you say something like once upon a time you're introducing a kind of rhythm into the reader's mind that that, that they're going to begin to keep that rhythm um, that they are going to pay attention to colors or sort of landscape or animals in a way that in realistic fiction, um, where there is there is no fairy tale sort of thread, uh, they might notice them, but but they're not going to have that charged quality that they do right. if you introduce the possibility of fairy tales. Right. When the bear shows up, a bear shows up in this, it's... Uh... <laughs> I'm not worried. Oh no, he might get eaten by that bear or he might get destroyed. It's just like, oh, what's this bear gonna do? You know, you're not you're in this. This realm. is not a cocaine bear. This is a <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I I definitely react well to that when I'm reading fiction um in general and when I'm reading your fiction. I just know that I'm in a space where uncanny things are going to happen. And I guess in sort of a spell work way, I've wondered if focusing so much on the uncanny in your work has brought uncanny into your waking non-short story writing life. Um, 
maybe I mean uh for one thing because I I love ghost stories um I when I do events and I will or if I'm I'm at a school often I make a component of that I will tell a true ghost story uh and often if you do that or I've found that if you do that then people in the audience will come up to you later and say I have a I have a true ghost story and they will tell you their ghost story so you have exchanged ghost story DNA and so in my head I have this enormous collection now of ghost stories that people have have told me um which which you know then I will go out and tell other people and then get more in return and so on and so on however I am not uh a person who sees ghosts I I think everybody has weird stuff happen in their life but for me it's not sadly or maybe happily I don't know I I I've never had a ghostly, I've never had a ghostly encounter. Um, and as much as I love movies about ghosts or stories about ghosts, um, I think I'm okay with that. In this book, you mentioned another thing, another book. That's one of my absolute favorites. And I could not believe to encounter it in your fiction because someone has asked me in the past for the format of the show I always have someone uh, recommend a book to discuss with me and they've asked what would you discuss if you were going to come on your own show and my answer is Motel of the Mysteries by David Macaulay and it shows up in this book as it's just this amazing weird book that I read in elementary school um, and has stuck with me ever since. How did you encounter Motel of the Mysteries? Uh, we, I, I, I love, I love that book. Um, I had never read anything like it. The idea that you would get this very serious treatment of something that was that was uh, not serious. Um, so it's it's about a, a group of. Um, archaeologists uh digging up is it a motel six i think mm -hmm. i think so or it's oh it's it's like a motel six if right. not um and they are they're um coming up with all of the uh what they think the items that they're finding uh what they might have been used for and my favorite is the the sort of the um crown made out of the strip of paper that goes around the the toilet uh yeah. the toilet seat <laughs> And one of the assistants is is wearing it around her head the way that she they they are sort of assuming it was was worn in this uh, sacred ritual. Mm -hmm. um, but my family was a family that uh, had a subscription to Reader's Digest, and Reader's Digest either excerpted it or or ran it. Mm -hmm. um, so I read that over and over again, and I loved his illustration style. Um, so much cross hatching. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and years later, you know, he, he wrote, um, is it the way things work? Yes. Uh, which, which, and, and a bunch of other fabulous books. And I, it took me a long time to realize that this book that I really liked was written by the guy who had written this really serious slash goofy, uh, motel of mysteries, which, which had been really important to me as a kid. Yeah. 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 It's, it's one of these books that completely, upends how you're thinking about your current life because you realize that people coming later won't be able to see all of our intention and it's just a big idea to sort of be thrust into when you're like eight <laughs> you know th that your yeah. well-meaning aunt that just got you um the way things work also oh you'll like this one too um and it's just like it's just this huge because it I, I think it's the year 4800 and um, the United States has fallen to junk mail. It's like that's what they're that's what they're drilling down into. So I just it was really like oh my god, like a moment I couldn't believe to see the t that title of the book um, appear here. But it really I think it's it's a moment in the book too where you're supposed to be thinking about how is this turned on its head, and I I just really appreciated that. I, I, for me, it was this great uh, sort of 
um, lesson that serious people telling you things seriously, it didn't necessarily mean that they were that they were right. Uh, the things that they told you might be screwball, you know, back, you know, have have nothing to do with the actual subject matter. And that was a that was a you know that that has remained yes. a valuable lesson. Right. I mean, it's also to go from that and then you'd like start your Egypt, you know, course in sixth grade or something. And it's just like all of these. And you're just thinking like, boy, that's a lot of assumptions. Like we are so far deep down into our assumptions at this point. Yeah. So this is a few books into the Kelly Link Library. And I'm curious how you feel about all of those books as a whole next to each other on a shelf. Do you think about your oeuvre and your and and the the link library and and how it's looking? I do a little bit. Uh, one of the things about this book that I didn't realize until after um, after it was sort of in a random house beginning to go through the many stages that books go through once they've been accepted um was was that there was there was kind of a, a defining difference between the stories and get in trouble and and this and that was get in trouble i really thought about as a collection of stories about people behaving pretty badly um understandably maybe but on the whole pretty badly and i realized that um this collection i think in large part because it is uh drawing so heavily on fairy tales is about people who are trying really hard to do the right thing um that the things that they are doing are if they're not good behavior they're at least doing the things that they do out of love uh, or out of sort of the things that we think of as 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 good places or good emotions, and so in that way, I'm really pleased because it feels different from the previous collection. And I, one of the things I guess that I worry about a lot is that if you stack up all the books next to each other, uh, they're going to have a sameness to them that you're going to think, well, I've I've read this kind of story before. I know the things that she's going to do in this. And so to find something that felt like a pretty significant difference uh, was was pleasing. Um, and then sort of thinking forward, mostly I just feel very apologetic because nobody ever has enough bookshelf uh, space. And I'm really sorry about the novel. <laughs> this collection is nice and sort of a, a good size. It's probably about 65,000 words. It's like a Gatsby and a half. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sorry about the novel because I don't have space for it on my shelf. Like <laughs> throw out the collections or maybe. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, I am so excited about this extremely long um, book because, you know, I I love a long novel. I really do. Um, and when, because to me, it just means that someone's just really gone for it. That's really interesting. You know, I was complaining on the phone uh, or actually on another Zoom. I was uh, talking with the writer, Lee Bardugo, because she had agreed to read a draft of the novel and sort of help me see some things in it. And I was saying uh, that I I felt a little deflated because when I, when I have a short story, uh, Maybe it's because I haven't worked on it for as long, but there's a lot of joy attached to it. I'm like, man, I, you know, I pulled off some, regardless of whether or not the story is good, there will be something there that I think I got to pull something off. Like I got to try something and the novel just went on so long that when I got to the end, I thought, well, I definitely got to pull some things off, but I'm not sure that the feeling is larger uh, in the same way that the novel is so much larger, I thought my the feeling is 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 maybe smaller than I expected it to be. Hmm. And she said, "Look, here's the thing about the novel. The novel, she said, with a the short stories, you get a little tipsy, uh, but with a novel, the novel is long enough that the reader is is able to get drunk 
uh, from what you're from what you're doing. And and that was really satisfying. I thought, and I just read uh, Mariana Enriquez's Our Share of Night. And I thought, oh, yeah, I, I can see that because I love her short stories. And I also I had, I loved the novel and I got to the end of that and I thought I could keep on reading for another 100,000 words. That's I think that's the highest praise when you're still done, when you can turn the end of it and be like more. Although I feel like that's probably going to be your least favorite message from people. As soon as they re- finish the book that you've just put out like a week later, you're like, what they're like, what's next from you? And you're just like, uh, just that, that was what's next. Actually next for me is going to be a very Gatsby-esque uh, 45,000 word Oh, ghost novel. I want to read a really tight ghost novel and just get stuff done really quickly and scarily. (laughs) So you brought to me a book, um, The Women Could Fly by Megan Giddings. And I would love to hear why this one was the one that you put on my desk. I loved Megan Giddings' first book, uh, Lakewood, um, which came out maybe two, three years ago. Um, and this book I love even more. Um, you know, I it's about a uh, woman living in a contemporary version of the U.S. in which um, witchcraft is real. So the main character, Josephine, is about to turn 28. She is going to be monitored by the state, as all women are, once they hit a certain age, um, for signs that that she is a witch. And um, what I love about the book is um, the magic in it, the witchcraft, which is real, it just feels numinous and interesting. Um, one strand of the book is about her mother who disappeared when when Josephine was a child. Um, and the book opens when Josephine and her father are about to declare the mother dead rather than just missing. And so they're going through a storage locker of, of her stuff. Um, and you eventually find out what happened to the mother. Um, you get to sort of be in the main character's head as she thinks about um, all these choices that she has to make. And she is a character who's between a lot of worlds. She's biracial, her mother is black, her father is white. Um, she is also bi uh, in this version of the US. Um, if you're a woman, you once you hit sort of this 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 age in your late twenties, uh, you are being monitored by the state, and you have to have you either have to have yourself registered as a witch or declared a witch, and then all sorts of things happen. Um, you can't have a bank account, things like that, or you have to have a man, a father, or a husband who keeps an eye on you to make sure that you don't practice witchcraft. And so she is dating very casually uh, a guy that she thinks of for a long time as Party Party City. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I did too. Um, It was actually a really good guy. Um, But the book introduces uh, all these uh, complications or arguments that basically come out of um, living under an unjust system, uh, under unjust laws. Uh, in which race and gender factor in. And so it feels uh, pretty pertinent. But what I love is that it also feels lived in. It doesn't just feel like a metaphor. It feels as if the magic is actually real in the context of the book. Yeah. Yeah, it feels that that weight. And it's also one of these things that um, I was... I sometimes feel in your fiction as well um, that she was doing where she would just sort of pass something off that's like a spell or something that they can do. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. That's great. What is that? And you want want her to just slow down and just say like, hold at that thread for a while. But that's not what she's interested in. She wants to let that simmer for your own mind 
And then because she's got this very um, emotional story about motherhood and what mothers owe their daughters uh, in, in this way. There was like that sort of grappled with as well. Um, it, it felt sort of it's funny because it took this sort of fantasy element and made it, I guess you could say it's sort of sci-fi because it felt more like Margaret Atwood or Lenny Zumas, you know, it felt much more like those writers than it did feel, you know, like Neil Gaiman or something. You're right. It does absolutely feel like a little bit like Red Clocks or Margaret Atwood. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. Like the, 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 details that you find out about specific spells. She worked in a museum that is doing an exhibit of, of cursed objects, things that are made by registered witches. And, you know, one of the pleasures there is, uh, you know, later on after she has access to her own magic, she sort of tells you which, which cursed objects have real magic and which don't. And that was like a like a curtain being drawn back you're like oh which ones are real <laughs> which ones are... <laughs> of course they're all fictional they're not real but it felt like you're getting secret information on which ones actually are spells absolutely yeah i i uh i listened to this book i listened to the audiobook um read by angel peen um absolutely phenomenal audiobook really great and i was listening to it as i was um i was in Philadelphia randomly for the weekend and it's just like walking around listening to that book it like now that book is very tied to Philadelphia um in my oh, mind so cool. and I was curious if you have books like that if books do that to you as well um that they get really tied to the place where you read them I do um a lot of them are are from from childhood so books that I read as a kid um in the the Coral Gables library uh, which was a beautiful library we would walk to it from my grandmother's house um and so I sort of remember the sidewalks which were usually covered in, in love bugs mm. which are these these kind of they're not gross but they're they're when there are a lot of them uh they're little tiny red and black bugs that get stuck together hence the the name um mm -hmm. but we'd walk down there and I, I read um, a book, a kid's book by Gerald Durrell, uh, who is a naturalist and, and the brother of Lawrence Durrell, the novelist. Oh, and yeah. Gerald Durrell wrote one kid's book uh, called The Talking Parcel about talking animals. Um, and I read that over and over in the library because I loved it and I didn't know how I could acquire my own copy. <laughs> so I would just read it there. Um, yeah, and then this is going to sound strange, but uh, we were living in Brooklyn in 2001. And um, after September 11th, I read a bunch of horror novels. Um, I find horror very comforting. And so I remember reading um, uh, Stephen King and Peter Straub's um, uh, oh. The Black House, the sequel to Talisman, The Talisman, mm -hmm. which I loved. Um, and so I, that book for me, if I reread it, which I do occasionally, I'm back on the floor of, I used to sit and read on the floor of our apartment. Um, and so that's, 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 that is very tied to that place in that particular moment. Do you get scared by horror fiction or does it just work as regular fiction, I guess? I do, but I really enjoy it. My sister and I, uh, my sister's two and a half years younger than me. We both love horror. If we read something that we love, we'll text the other person. It's the same with horror movies mm -hmm. um, or anything that's that's scary. Uh, and I do. I find the not everything scares me. And there are writers who I've reread so many times now that... Um, I don't find them scary in the same way. I find them um, like Mr. James. Now I don't find creepy. I find kind of delicious, unsettling. Yeah. Maybe uh, there's a writer. Um, it's writer Nick Mamadas who I used to go around asking uh, people who reread her novels or who loved her um, what what they why they reread books or what 
because you're no longer really reading them to um to feel to feel i think fright or terror but um i think he said something about how they organize a feeling of dread mm. that it, it sort of is you read you read them and you feel this this sense of dread which is uh almost a kind of uh a release yeah um, i would say that dread factors into the women could fly as well because this governing body that hates witches so much and you know by extension seemingly hates women um you're just expecting for them to come in and ruin her life at some point you're just waiting because they that's sort of like the taut string that keeps getting pulled back you just think that that that's coming Absolutely. Yeah. She sort of has three points in the book. She has these three encounters with the Bureau of Witchcraft and uh, they are very much a bureaucracy. They're very much ordinary people and they're terrifying. Yes. Uh, and, you know, the moments when she and her friend are driving through um, the upper part of, is it Michigan, I think? the upper peninsula i think so they they pass through a town and the town has a huge sign that you know says we burn witches in this town like it's really it is it you feel uh kind of squeamish reading because you're so afraid of, of what may happen to her when a novel is going to work with witches i mean like i personally get interested i always i'm drawn to especially contemporary depictions of witchcraft but I also get a little worried because I want them to deal with it in the way that I want magic to work. Do you have that a similar um, trepidation about picking up a new book of uh, that's going to deal with magic realism or or uh, fantasy elements? Yeah, I think that um, you know I'll read any any ghost story, anything with ghosts in it. I'll read it, and I. You know, on one level, I don't care if it's good or bad because it's just more more fodder. I'm like, this is great. There are more ghosts, um, but there are definitely versions of the fantastic, whether it's vampires or werewolves. Where I think I I will read and I'll think, man, you have really picked the least interesting to me aspect of this this supernatural creature. Um, you know, it, it, you, I think everybody, the, the, the weird thing about the fantastic is um, it only exists as an idea in, in our head. That's the great thing about writing fantasy is, is you are getting to make up so much stuff. And by makeup, I mean, you're pulling from your own ideas about how the fantastic may operate. You're drawing from cultural ideas, you're drawing from religion, from TV shows, and you're sort of picking and choosing the things and the metaphors that you want to sort of attach to the thing that you're doing. And so sometimes, you know, the metaphor feels too much like a one-on-one -on -one to me in a way that kind of drains the magic out. Right. Or I think the world just doesn't feel real enough. Like the, you've, you've sort of left out the complications of the human heart and the human mind um, in yes. terms of dealing with this kind of stuff, I really wish, like you'd given me a little bit more character as well as the 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 cool fantastic effect. Yes, yeah. I mean, this book, the women could fly. I think that that's the strength of of this bureaucracy that comes in because it's such drudgery and it's actually such familiar bureaucracy. Like anyone who's ever had to answer some questions from you know, any sort of person that works in an office, um, you will be familiar with the bureaucracy in this book. And it's coming up against this depiction of the fantastic that is so well wrought that like, I think everything gets weighted into this reality that feels yeah. that made all that magic really matter. That's like the DMV if the DMV could also burn you at the stake, which Ugh. I'm sure they would really like to do. They would love to. <laughs> just give them the power they would just say absolutely this is what we needed yeah oh well i'm so glad you recommended this book to me 
And now that we're in the recommendation portion of the show, I'd love to hear any more recommendations you might have book-wise or anything. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to push once more Our Share of Night by Mariana Enriquez, as well as all of her collections. Um, it is a gorgeous translation by Megan McDowell and... You know, I say that as somebody who has not read the original version, but but it is uh, it is such a uh, complicated and yet fluid read. Um, her short stories are also she has two collections translated here, and they are all just among my favorite books. Um, and then in the same vein, I will recommend a television show which I think is on. HBO called uh, 30 Coins, uh, which is which is about a, a, a small town mayor and a veterinarian and a priest who are battling the forces of evil. And it is way over the top. And I loved it so much. I have not heard <laughs> anything about this show. I, I don't know. How it, but there's a lot of TV out there, but it sounds amazing. It is. It is. It is. I went back and went, I'm blanking on the director's name, but I've now watched one of his movies, which also was incredible. Um, oh, and then the other thing I'll recommend uh, is Edward Carey's um, book of drawings that uh, called Plagues and Pencils. And uh, every day over the course of a certain period of the pandemic, um, I for a year he he uh, made a drawing, and so this is the collection of those those drawings. And I love his fiction. He's a really interesting writer. Oh yeah. Um, and over the course of the pandemic, one of my great pleasures, like one of one of the great reliefs of Twitter, was, well, I wonder what Edward Carey has has drawn today, and and that was like to see somebody make something interesting. Out of out of a sort of year of, of weird uh, confinement and sort of anxiety, was really really reassuring that that people were still making things. Yes, yeah, his novel Little, I think it's called, um, was so good about Madame Tussauds, like the yeah. very beginning of that waxwork museum. So cool. I, I um I loved that project too. Yeah, I'm gonna recommend. A podcast, because everyone who listens to podcasts definitely needs another podcast to listen to. That's something that Absolutely. they're always saying. Just like giving a book lover a bunch of books, what you need to give to a podcast lover is another podcast. But um, yeah, I still think Dr. Dante is an incredible podcast. If you like this sort of true crime world, this guy starts as a hypnotist. He's like a stage hypnotist who marries Lana Turner and then they divorce. And that is only the very beginning of an absolute insane story that includes like tattooing face makeup and uh, trying to escape on yachts and all sorts of like one of the absolute my absolute favorite details that shows up is this guy's name. He's not actually a doctor. He never became a doctor. He had his name legally changed his first name legally changed to doctor. <laughs> I like it. Uh, and it's, I think it's eight episodes long. It's very like fleet storytelling. Um, absolutely go and check that out. I will. I have a couple of friends who I know if they haven't listened to it, that intersection of of uh, true crime and Lana Turner is <laughs> exactly. Oh, it's so great. Um, and then I, of course, need to recommend one more time white cat black dog um it's such a great story collection and all of the kelly link work if this is the first book that you encounter you definitely need to go back and read the rest um and i need to of course recommend to going and leaving um a review on itunes for this podcast i covet them not just because it is good for my ego but it is also good for the life of the show and the other thing that's good for the life of the show is if you support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash smdb. I'm going to be starting a book club soon. So if you want to be in on the book club, join the Patreon. We're going to hang out on Zoom and 
I'm going to find all sorts of fun things to do with that. So come and join the fun because I would love to have you in that world as well. Kelly Link, thank you so much for hanging out with me. This has been an absolute pleasure. And I just want to thank you for your books. They've meant a lot to me over the years. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this. I don't get out much at the moment. So this was an enormous pleasure. And I'm going to go make a drink now. (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful.